Right, Ezekiel chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they were sent into exile. Therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession and they shall set their encampments among you and make their dwellings in your midst. They shall eat your fruit and they shall drink your milk. I will make Rabbah a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. And I will cut you off from the peoples and will make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because Moab and Seir said, behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country. Beth Jeshemoth, Baal Maon and Kiriathaim. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off from it from man and beast. And I will make it desolate from Teman, even to Dedan. They shall fall by the sword and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath and they shall know my vengeance declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took the, took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will cut off the Cherethites and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will ex execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Hmm. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Ezekiel is unrelenting. Week after week, these hard words from God. As a people, we desire resolution, don't we? We desire things to be completed. We're hardwired to want to know what is going to happen next. 
for the story to come to some kind of resolution or conclusion, happy ending. We're not getting that right now in Ezekiel, are we? But good stories tap into this desire. Early in the story, a conflict or a problem is introduced, and this is, again, across classic literature. You'll notice this pattern, this plot structure. Early in the story, a conflict or a problem is introduced, and the story builds, eventually leading to some kind of of a climax or a turning point. And following that comes a resolution of some kind and perhaps a lesson or conclusion. This is basic plot structure, right? And many of your favorite stories, no doubt, follow that pattern. This basic kind of storyline seems to be written into the very fabric of reality. The story of the Bible basically follows this line. Creation introduces the main characters in the story. The fall is where the conflict or the problem is brought forth. And then everything builds and builds until we come to the cross where the climax, the pinnacle of the story happens. The resolution is then presented at the resurrection, right? And after that, there are some interesting twists and turns, but eventually all will be resolved when Christ returns. Evil is judged and believers dwell with God forever and ever. The new heavens and the new earth. It follows that basic storyline that we see in so many other classic works of literature. The classic works of literature are following the storyline of the Bible, right? That's really what's happening there. But that basic storyline is written into virtually every good story there is. And I think it's written even upon our hearts. But every now and then in a good story... Or in life, you have something happen when this general plot structure is broken. You expect the next step in the usual storyline to come, and it doesn't. Or it's delayed. You're like, oh, this should be about the time when the climax happens and then the resolution. All right, come on. Come on, where is it? And it doesn't come. It's delayed. You know, we call those moments. We call those moments cliffhangers. Some of your favorite movies, no doubt, have cliffhangers where the next piece of the story is withheld from us or you get to the end even and you're still wondering what's going to happen. I remember this feeling back in the days, you know, hundreds of years ago, right? Young people will laugh at this before streaming. Remember those days, which again, seems like hundreds of years ago, but it was actually just like a few years ago when you would actually have to sit through commercials and wait a few minutes on the next portion of the show, or when every now and then, the end of the show, you got that to-be-continued, uh, you know, slide or whatever. And you'd have to wait until the next week to get the rest of the story. Some of you guys will remember those days. <laughs> I used to hate that. You really get sucked into a story and then there's no resolution until next week. Well, in our story today, the people in Babylon, the exiles, are going to get a to-be-continued kind of message from Ezekiel. You see, last week in Ezekiel 24, God told the people that Babylon had just begun laying siege to the holy city, Jerusalem. They were told that Jerusalem would fall. And to drive the point home, 
Amazingly, shockingly, the Lord took the life of Ezekiel's wife and she died that night. You'll remember this. We looked at it last week. The message was clear. Just as she died, so too would Jerusalem die. Ezekiel 24 verse 1 says that that message was given to the people in exile in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month. God will not speak to the people in Babylon again until chapter 33. In that chapter, we're given a date of the twelfth year of, of our exile, on the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month. Nearly three years go by, went by, before the people were given any more news of what actually happened to Jerusalem. Were Ezekiel and Jeremiah correct? Was Jerusalem going to fall? Would we be without a home to go back to? All of those things. Or would the tension, the conflict of the book be resolved with some kind of miraculous intervention on the part of God? No doubt the people were wondering, is God going to show up and deliver and prove, prove Ezekiel and Jeremiah wrong? No doubt many hope for that. But three years go by before they're told anything at all. That's quite the cliffhanger. It's hard enough to wait a week for the next installment of a show, let alone three years with some news like this. Well, chapter 25 begins a series of messages from God against the nations surrounding Israel. And if we're honest, this section kind of feels like a commercial or a to be continued section. We want the next piece in the basic, almost inevitable storyline we've come to expect and to long for, right? It's coming to a climax. Is Jerusalem going to fall or not? We want that next step. And then some kind of a resolution or lesson to roll out of it. But alas, we don't get it. We will get it, but not yet. Ezekiel is going to give eight chapters worth of messages dealing exclusively with the nations surrounding Israel taking us right up to chapter 33, where we finally get to the climax of the book. So as we turn to this section, which just so you know, I'm not going to preach all of those chapters, okay? So I'm not going to go in eight weeks of judgment on the nations. I'm not going to do that. Counting tonight, or today is not tonight, we'll probably have maybe two sermons focused on this section. But as we turn to this section, the temptation for you and me is going to be to check out and say, oh, I'm going to wait until we get to the, you know, to the next step in that natural storyline. And I'm just going to check out for now. Like, like this is a commercial or something, right? This is not an intermission. This is not a commercial. This is a part of the main event for us. And God has given us these words for a reason. And we would do well to pay attention to them. In fact, there is a word here for us this morning that is quite relevant to the goings on in our world today. And that word is this. And that word is this This is the big idea for us this morning. Since the fate of every nation, whether for judgment or for blessing, is in God's hands, we must all humble ourselves before him. Since the fate of every nation, whether for judgment or blessing, is in God's hands, ultimately we must humble 
all humble ourselves before God. That's the basic point, okay? In other words, God is the Lord of history. He raises up kings and rulers and nations and world powers, and he puts them down as he sees fit. It is his prerogative as God to do this. And there are a number of ways we're going to, a number of ways we're going to see this in our passage today and in the larger story of Ezekiel that I hope um, that we'll see as we go along here. And the first point is this. The first way we can humble ourselves. I want to give us three ways we can humble ourselves before God. I can say that. We must humble ourselves before God. And we think, well, what does that look like maybe? Well, I want to give us three ways we can do that this morning. The first way we can humble ourselves before him is to recognize that nations serve the purpose of God and not the other way around. In other words, God's agendas are bigger and larger than ours. Whatever we think our nation might exist to do or to be, it is always secondary to what God is doing. Okay? If you were to turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, and you can do that if you want, 2 Kings chapter 24, you will find these same nations that are mentioned in our passage in Ezekiel 25. You'll find many of those kingdoms, those nations mentioned there. You'll read about Ammon and Moab and Syria and the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. And here's what it says in that opening section in that chapter in 2 Kings. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and the king became his servant for three years, the king of Judah of Israel. Then he turned and rebelled against him. The same thing that Zedekiah would do a few years later. And and you guys who've been following along with us will remember we talked about Zedekiah um, recently. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely, listen, this all came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. Do you hear that? All these nations were doing all this stuff. Why? Because God said it. God commanded it and made it happen. To remove them out of his sight was the final part of that verse there. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. So don't worry about all the details, right? If you're like, well, who is, you know, King Jehoiakim and Zedekiah? And, you know, you know who are the, all these people? Don't worry about that, okay? Don't get lost in those details. The big point to take away for now is that these nations serve God's purpose, okay? Not the other way around. But this is speaking of the time and place in which we're looking at right now in the book of Ezekiel, okay? So it's very much uh, related and um, happening during the time frame we're already talking about. God is using these nations to bring about what he desires. And that is also what we see, again, in the days of Ezekiel. We see this very clearly. King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, you'll hear that term throughout, same group of people, They became an instrument of God's judgment. In other words, they are being used by God to bring about his purpose and his plan for the world. And yes, that is true, even when the nation is unrighteous and evil. These are not good nations. These are evil nations that are filled with all kinds of problems and corruption and sin. God is still using them to accomplish his plan. 
And this means a lot of things for us. This is not just an interesting theological point to ponder. This means a lot for us. One thing in particular that it means for us is that our nation and all nations are not ultimate. And this may be hard for some of us to swallow. As much as we may love our heritage and love our flag and love our story, which for many of us is different. Some of us in this room come from many different places, right? All over the world. But as much as we may love those places, our countries, recognizing they're not perfect, they are not ultimate. Okay, They are not the end-all, be-all. Scripture says that here... We have no lasting city here in this world, but we seek a city which is to come. If you're a follower of Jesus, our primary citizenship is now in heaven, not in the earthly nation that we're a part of. And this comes from someone who deeply loves our country. I love the United States of America. Warts and all. This is my land But you know someone else who loved his country and loved his heritage. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. And maybe Ezekiel even more than what we can think of here. Maybe some of us here are really passionate about our land, which I get that. I I am too. Ezekiel probably would have been more so. Ezekiel loved his people, loved his nation. He would have been in line to be a priest And to have one of the highest honors a person can have in that time and place. To serve in the glorious temple in Jerusalem. This would have been a a big deal. Yet Ezekiel's dreams were dashed. And in this moment, right here in chapter 25, he knows that those things that he loved so much had come to an end. He's been told, Jerusalem's being sieged, it's going to fall. That glorious temple where you were going to serve is going to be no more. It's going to be burned Many of the people you love and know are going to die, going to be carried off into the nations. It's all ending. It's over. That's tough news. Incredibly tough news. Ezekiel was in exile. He lived in a foreign land, away from the place he loved, against his will. Many of you are here from foreign places, and we're grateful for that. But you're here probably because you want to be here. Right? Imagine if you were toted off somewhere that you didn't want to be. Right? That would be a different kind of scenario, wouldn't it? It would be very different. And that's what Ezekiel's lot was. His life was not what he wanted. And yet Ezekiel served God right where he was in Babylon. He fulfilled his mission, living as an exile. So if we're thinking rightly and seeing rightly, we here in our land are more like Ezekiel than we know. We too are exiles. We too are not home. We too are living in a foreign land. Some of you will remember those themes in the book of First Peter, which we went through together last year. Some of you were here for that. God is not concerned with man's political boundaries and national ties. God's agenda is much bigger and much greater and infinitely better than any agenda you and I may have. For those of us like Ezekiel who love their country and love its story, warts and all, this can feel like bad news. I feel like we're losing something. 
but I assure you, I assure you it's not. While God is setting up leaders and nations and bringing down leaders and nations, and as we look around us and feel like things for us maybe here in our land are on the downslide, let your hearts be encouraged. I hope this is an encouragement to you. Because while our earthly home may change and rise and fall, our heavenly home, our true home, will always be preserved. Okay? God is always working, always establishing, furthering, building our heavenly home. It is never falling. It is never backsliding. It is never being destroyed. It is always secure and stable. This is one reason why, in my opinion, the news is limited in its value. Because all you hear in the news is earthly realities. Talk of nations doing this, nations doing that. Well, it's all going to be different in the end, folks. Again, those things have some value, but they're not ultimate. Don't give your life to what is passing away. Give it to the lasting, ultimate, eternal things. Let us humble ourselves before God and recognize that our nations are ultimately serving the purpose of God. And for us as believers, that's good news. Okay, so that's point number one. Whatever happens in this world, God is doing it for his plan, for his purpose. Our job is to humble ourselves before him and trust him. Okay, point number one. Point number two. The second way we can humble ourselves before him is to recognize that everyone will have to give an account before God. It would be easy to hear the first point we just made and to think, well, how can God use the nations to destroy Israel, which is what this section is about, right? It's, um, as we just read in that passage in 2 Kings, all these nations were going into to Judah to, to do the Lord's bidding. Um, and it would be easy to hear that and then turn around and and why, how can God turn around and judge them for doing the thing he told them to do? Right? But this is precisely what happens over and over again throughout the scriptures. Not only are various nations mentioned here in chapter 25, are they said to be instruments of judgment in the hand of God, but they are also condemned for their actions in conducting that judgment. We also see this in the death of Jesus upon the cross. Who killed, who killed Jesus? The Bible says God did. The Bible also says a bunch of people did. An angry mob. Which is it? It's both. It's both. So the Bible affirms God put Jesus on the cross. That God was the one who crushed the Son. Yet at the same time, Peter can stand up and point at the crowds gathered around him at Pentecost and say, You killed him! In the very same breath, Peter can affirm that both God and man put Jesus on the cross. Listen to this, Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is a part of the plan. God's doing this. Not you. God's doing this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, he says. Same sentence. God's responsible. Man's responsible. Over and over again, the Bible will do this. And some of us may see this as a kind of contradiction or as a problem. I assure you it is not. But instead of trying to offer some lengthy explanation or perspective on the issue, that would take some time, we'd have to look all over the Bible to try and unpack that and look into that. What I'm going to do, 
This morning is merely affirm what the Bible says, that God is in absolute control of all things, yet at the same time, people make real choices and are held responsible for those choices. The Bible affirms both of these absolutely, clearly, start to finish. Every nation serves the purpose of God, and yet they will also give an account before that same God. Okay, this is a a tension. These are two truths held up by Scripture. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me in our passage now. Ezekiel 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. So God is pointing out, you've done some things. Yes, you're doing my bidding. But you've done some things and I'm going to judge you for those things. Now look at verses 8 and 9 with me. And we could go through and read all of these. I'll just read one more and then you'll kind of get the gist of it. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. So they're kind of mocking God's people and saying, You aren't any different. You're not a holy people. You're not set apart. You're not special. Though you say you are. They're mocking. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on the frontier. And he goes on. And he's going to do this in each section with these nations. And he's basically saying, because you have done X, Y, and Z, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. Here in chapter 25, Ezekiel starts with the nations closest to Israel. But as the chapters roll along, he's going to bring in other nations that are further from them and prophesy against them too. Nations like Egypt. So you'll see a couple of chapters as we go through on Egypt. And Felicia, you can pull up that image if you've got it there for me. If I can find my little stick there. Yeah. All right. So here's uh, Judah. There's Jerusalem right there. And um, the people surrounding Judah here. You know, you've got Tyre, Philistia, Ammon, Moab, and Edom's down here. These were used by God to bring judgment upon the people of God. And Babylon, of course, is going to be out in this direction. Um, and Babylon is actually kind of spearheading the whole thing, occupying many of these peoples, controlling them, and their military leaders are in charge of the military leaders of these smaller nations. And so it's a big, a big conglomerate kind of coming in and, um, doing the Lord's bidding. There's a lot to say about that, but just to try and cut to the chase, what are we to make of this, okay? And I know there's a lot of interesting historical stuff we could talk more about, but the big point here that we need to see is that whether you are Israel or you are Edom or Tyre or Philistia or Egypt, you will be judged by God's law. That is... I think a central point here in this way, there is no partiality with God. God does not judge you according to where you are from. Okay. He judges you according to whether or not you keep his commands. 
And if you notice in the sections we just read, God does not condemn people based on where they're from, but according to their deeds. In other words, he doesn't say to the folks from Tyre, well, because you're from Tyre, you're condemned. Or because you're from Philistia, you're condemned. No, he says, because you did this, because you did that, you are condemned. In this way, God is not partial to anyone or to any group. They stand or fall based on their obedience to God's standards. And some people know more of God, right? So God takes that into account when judgment comes to those people. Today, in our land, we love to heap guilt on people based on the groups they belong to. This is really a a terrible, concerning trend in our nation. Or on the other side, we dismissed people based on the groups they belong to. This is wrong. This is not a Christian way of thinking, folks. Some of you may have heard terms like intersectionality or cultural Marxism. I'm not going to give you a lecture on those. I'm not an expert in those things. But both of these philosophies group people based on externals like race, sexuality, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and so on. And it pronounces either blessings or curses on those people based on the groups you belong to and not according to their individual performance or character. This is the very opposite of what the Bible shows us about God. And it is wrong. God judges people by his law, not by the groups they belong to. Now, on the surface here, we see God casting judgment on entire nations. So it would appear, maybe some of you were thinking, well, God is collectivizing the people. He is saying, well, Tyre and Edom and Philistia, these are groups of people, right? It's not individuals. But really, when you bore down into the details, you see God, a God that deals with the individual. And some of you will remember from a couple of weeks ago when we talked about this. It's no coincidence that oftentimes our personal sins are also the sins of our culture, right? So in that way, there's a connection oftentimes between our culture and our own struggles. Okay, but in chapter 18, Ezekiel deals with this and says, no, the soul that sins shall die. The soul, not the nation, the soul, right? Each of us will stand or fall before God as individuals and we will be judged by God's law. This should humble us because it doesn't matter where you're from, or who you are, or what people group you belong to. What matters alone is your standing before the King of Kings. Your standing before God. That's what matters most of all as, a, as an individual. Even Israel, the people of God, could not plead their chosen status before God. In other words, they couldn't say, God, you chose us to be the special group of people that you were going to work with. So therefore, we're exempt from obeying your law. And we can do whatever we want. No, they couldn't do that. They're being condemned along with all the rest here. Do you see? God shows no partiality. No, as we've seen here, God is bringing judgment upon them, even though they were his special people whom he was revealing himself to in a special way. But they continued to break his law and were unrepentant. So the biggest question for us today is not where are you from, Or what group do you belong to? That's not the most important question for you. The biggest question we should be asking ourselves today is how 
Do you measure up to God's law? And if you're like me, you know immediately, I'm not measuring up. I can't measure up. I'm no better than the Ammonites or the Israelites or the Philistines or the Edomites or the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or any of those groups. I will be judged by God's standards. And I know I don't measure up. So what must I do? What must you do? And this leads to our third point. The third way we can humble ourselves before him is to look to God to provide a way out. To look to God to provide a way out. I remember when I was working in construction down south some years ago, I had a boss who was very caring and would often call me once in a while just to talk. He didn't have to do that, but he would. And he was the kind of guy who was full of little one-liners and nuggets of wisdom. And he was one of the first people I ever heard say, don't work harder, work smarter. You ever heard that before? That's a really common... Now, as I'm older, I realize how that's really common. Um, But at the time, that was the first time I'd really heard that. It was very, very helpful to me. I worked long hours in the sun and often was completely exhausted at the end of the day. So a little tip or trick to work smarter and not harder uh, was invaluable. But most of us, when it comes to doing what is right, however you know, we think of this, wherever we're from, most of us, when it comes to doing what is right, tend to just try harder. Oh, I messed up. I, I just need to try harder. We fail over and over again and then just tell ourselves, well, I just got to find more resolve, more strength to try harder. The problem for you and me, though, is not effort. Some of us work really, really, really hard at being good people. I know most of you out there. And I know quite a many of you are doing that. You're working hard to be a decent person. But some of those people, don't take offense, I hope you won't. Some of those are the worst kinds of people, quite frankly. And I know that because I'm one of those. I tend to be. Just ask my wife, okay? <laughs> Get her down here and she can tell you all about it. I'm sure you know the type, that self-righteous type who never does anything wrong and is always looking down their noses at others. That's just as wrong in God's sight as the person who just completely disregards the good and the right. Effort, my point is this, effort is not the problem. The problem is our hearts. You and I need new hearts. And really soon in Ezekiel, we're going to see this. We're going to see this really, really soon. God is going to say to Ezekiel that we're all a bunch of dry, dead bones. And the only thing that can make us live is God. We can't make ourselves live. We can't work our way into new life. It's something that's given to us. God's law, and the reason we keep pointing to that over and over and over again, I mean, for one, the scriptures do that over and over again, but God's law was brought in to help us realize that. To realize we can't do all the things we need to do. It was intended to lead us to God. The New Testament calls it a tutor. Right, It was showing us the way, leading us, teaching us uh, to go to Christ. It was intended to reveal our brokenness, our inability. And the people that get this gift are the ones who deep down in their hearts know that the only way they're ever going to be right before God is if He makes them right. Those are the ones that, that, that get the, that or that have been given that new heart. Those that get 
that they can't do it. If somehow God provides a way for them to stand before him blameless, clean and righteous, not by seeking to be a part of the right group or by doing the right thing, but by renouncing all of its own righteousness and effort and by looking solely and completely to God. That is the perspective of the person who truly is saved and is right before God. Some of y'all remember that story in the New Testament. You've got the tax collector that goes up to the temple and he stands up and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I've done X, Y, and Z. Right? You've got the the Pharisee. Sorry, the Pharisee stands up and does that. And then the the tax collector won't even approach the temple and he just beats his chest. Can't even look up to heaven and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That person is the person with that new life living inside of them. And all of these things we're reading through the Old Testament and Ezekiel are leading up us to this point that we need God to act on our behalf if we are to be right before him. And I want to say to you today that God has provided that way. He has acted. And many of you know this. Many of you have embraced this way and live in this way. It's a way out from under, from under the judgment and under the curse of the law. Right? That you and, you and I deserve to be judged like all the nations in Ezekiel's day. But the way out is Jesus Christ. He is the way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, to God, but through me. All of the structures and the systems we see in the Old Testament, all that stuff was pointing forward to the person of Christ. Christ has come and has done all for you to live He is your way out. He has completely and fully kept God's law for you. He alone can give you a new heart. Look to him. Believe in what he has done for you. Rest in his love for you. Trust in his wisdom and in the plan he has for your life. He gave himself up for you on the cross so that you would know that there is absolutely nothing that can separate you from his love. That is why he came. This is our only hope for ourselves, for our families, our community, our state, our nation. We don't need another program. The problem is not all our structures and our institutions, though those certainly need some work. What we need is Jesus. We need new hearts. We must come and humble ourselves before God. And when we are humble and resting in Jesus, then even when we come up to those cliffhanger moments like what we have before us today in Ezekiel, We don't quite get to the next part of the story. We don't know what's coming, whether for our nation or for our life. When we come up to those cliffhanger moments, we will be okay. Not because we know what the future holds for us or for our nation, but because we know the one who is holding our future. Amen. That was a lot. Let's pray as we turn to God's table now. Lord, we we heed the words that were just spoken and we humble ourselves before you. We know that our nation serves your purpose and not the other way around. And Lord, I hope that encourages us because you are always doing what is right and good even when evil men 
try and thwart your purpose. They cannot. You will fulfill your plan. And we rest in your good plan. Lord, we know we will all stand before you in the judgment and will be judged one way or another by your law, by the standards that you have created. Or that reflect your character, I guess, is a better way of saying it. And Lord, that news is scary to us. But as we prepare for this table, the whole purpose and meaning and symbolism uh, that is in this table is a clear reminder and proclamation to us this morning that you have indeed acted and provided a way out from the curse of the law, from the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin. And that way is Jesus. And Jesus has come and given his life for us. This table is such a powerful picture of all these things we've heard this morning. Or prepare us now as we come. I pray that these elements would be to us the body and the blood of Christ. And that through them we would be taught, strengthened, helped, given courage, emboldened, humbled, purified. That you would do all those things that only you can do by your Holy Spirit. And we humble ourselves as we prepare to come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.